0: Well, it is that time for us to dig into the Word of God, the teaching hour that we've reserved for the uh, second half of our time together in worship. And today, today's the day we begin what I know will be a fascinating and profitable study in the book of Galatians. This is where the trumpets sound. Uh, I've been talking about starting it for a few weeks and have pushed the start date back a couple of times. And you probably, you probably thought if we would ever get here, but we have arrived. And my introduction to this wonderful book is in three parts. Now those who've gone through uh, biblical books with me long enough know that I typically provide a two-part introduction. Well, this time is different. It has nothing to do with the contents of the book which, by the way, is among the shortest that we have tackled in a while. And it has everything to do with the nature of this book, that being the form of this piece of literature or its genre, that is, how Paul packages his information here. Now, we're not looking at an imperial decree sent from Caesar, but a personal, heartfelt letter by the Apostle. And those two forms are different, as you well know, and would tell us right away something about their contents, and I'm excited to talk about the letter with you. My intention, then, is to start very generally, and with each part of my introduction, get more specific until we get to the point of the exposition of the text where we will get very specific. Now, I often use the illustration I have in in years past of a plane landing to describe this process of introduction. Today, we begin circling the airport by looking at the nature of biblical literature. In part two, we'll start our descent by talking about the date and the recipients and the authorship, the occasion for Paul's writing and the purpose of Galatians and so on. And then the week after, part in part three of the introduction, Lord willing, we will touch down on the runway by considering Paul's opponents, the heresy that they were speaking, and why we should even study this book at all. So then, let's consider the nature of this specific biblical literature called Galatians. I would say, first of all, and I'll Bring this really in in two major parts, in case you're taking notes and we didn't publish it this time around. Number one, Paul wrote the Galatian churches a letter. Paul wrote the Galatian churches a letter. And what comes to my mind right away when I hear this, I don't know about you, is that that's one example of just how down-to-earth relatable the Bible is. It's important to understand that God didn't send us a systematic theology, or a biblical theology, or a historical theology, and there are plenty of those, but the Bible isn't any of them. No, God sent a profound theological truth in everyday real-life contexts so that we could know it and be impacted by it. I'd say that the best way for us to learn important information, even theological truth, is in the real-life situation. I think you'd agree. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not downplaying formal lectures or classroom discussions or online courses. They all have their place. But there's nothing as powerful as a lesson learned from real life. A person who's been sheltered all his life can learn, certainly, of the wickedness of human nature by reading about it in history books. But a World War II vet knows it firsthand. You can sit a child down and teach him to be good, because he will surely reap what he sows, a principle he's likely to forget soon after the lesson. But if you meet him in detention after school where he's doing time for vandalizing a classroom and you teach him the sowing and reaping principle, he'll never forget it. God has communicated his word, beloved, in various categories that we call genres, all of which we're we're well familiar with and they are relatable and resonate with us because God knew the way to convey truth is just as important as the truth itself. Oh, yes. For example, nonfiction. Nonfiction, which we might call narrative, makes up most of the Old Testament. Don't know if you knew that. Why does it make up most of the Old Testament? Because God knows that everyone loves a good story. Through the elements of a story, the plot, the relationships between the characters, the climax... The the narrator draws you into a time, a different time, another time and place, and allows you to experience what the characters experience, to know what each character is thinking when no one else in the story knows. You share the narrator's omniscience and omnipresence as you skip between scenes that are taking place simultaneously. It's a great way to teach biblical truth. And then there's legal literature, that is, the law, what God demands of his people in no uncertain terms, which is similar to the law documents of our day. We might call them rules, the the important do's and don'ts of a particular context. Not only is it vital, you see, that we know what our God expects of us, but there are times when we need to hear it from him in clear-cut, absolute terms. And legal genre is the best for that. Then there is hymnic literature. These are the prayers of the psalmist put to song. And when we read them and we eavesdrop on their intimate prayers, not only learn their struggles and their sins, But we come as close as possible to their experience of the consequent misery that came upon them. We can relate to the way David explains in Psalm 38, his pain from God's discipline upon him for his unrepentant sin. God's hand presses down on him. There's no health in his bones because of his sin. He felt faint and badly crushed. We know a little bit of that. Biblical poetry takes us beyond the mere intellectual meaning of words, you see, to the emotions of the psalmist. We feel what they felt. When the psalmist says that his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth, we can relate and we wince. We sympathize with Asaph, whose foot almost slipped when he envied the evildoer. We've been there. Also, let's not forget biblical wisdom. And you know it well enough by now because of our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. The sage raises the same questions about life under the sun that that plague us at times. Why does the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? What difference does righteous living make if the wicked person and I face the same end, death? If I cannot take anything with me, is there any hope of lasting gain? Beloved, whether it's through the thrill of a story, the clear-cut and authoritative demands of legal literature, the lyrical poems of the psalmist, or the wise sayings of the sage, God's truth is relatable. And this is why the writer to the Hebrews calls Scripture living and active. And why Isaiah says that we ought to tremble at it. There are many more genres and subgenres in the Bible parable, gospel, oracle, liturgy, prophecy, apocalypses, each with its own unique ability to communicate biblical truth in relatable and meaningful ways. And the one that will occupy our attention for a while is called epistle, which we know much better as the letter. Paul wrote a letter. He wrote a letter. Of the 27 New Testament books, 21 of them are letters. That's 35% of the New Testament. And Paul wrote 13 of them. The letter was certainly one of God's means of conveying a large part of his special revelation in the New Covenant. And the way of the letter is a personal way. When I was growing up, it was considered much more personal to send someone a handwritten letter. And if you put it in a hallmark, well, you went all out. (laughs) Younger generations today, many of whom don't even know how to read, much less write cursive, may find it to be labor-intensive and a waste of time, not to mention expensive. Do you know how much a hallmark costs? Just shoot them a text with some clever emoji. Or better yet, if you really want to be personal about it, send them an e-card, yeah, yeah, an e-card. They're free. won't cost you a thing or take up any of your time, and it's effortless. Just a few keystrokes and you're done. Now, what they don't realize, of course, is that the time and the effort and the cost that goes into producing a heartfelt letter is a great part of what makes the letter all the more meaningful to the recipient, I would suggest to you that Paul found this mode of communication very personal and powerful. In their New Testament survey, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo ask, ask why the writers of the New Testament chose the form of letter writing when it wasn't the typical method of religious instruction among Jews of the first century. That is the right question to ask. Obviously, one reason is that missionaries and church planners such as Paul and others found letters to be the best means of communicating in the need of the moment from a distance. Paul couldn't get to a church 500 miles away if he were busy ministering at another location, nor could he be at two locations at the same time. So the letter was necessary in these cases. But there's more. Carson and Moo argue that the letter was a personal way of communication that conveyed not only spiritual truth, but the very heart of the Apostle himself. The late F.F. F. Bruce, renowned New Testament scholar who devoted his entire life to the study of Paul, agrees. He says, quote, of all the New Testament authors, Paul is the one who has stamped his own personality most unmistakably on his writings. It is especially for this reason that he has his secure place among the great letter writers in in world literature. His letters express so spontaneously and therefore so eloquently his mind and his message. I want to emphasize the fact That Paul didn't write a sophisticated theological monograph, but a letter. You know what a letter is. A relatable, readable letter to those whom he not only led to Christ, but helped found their churches. They were dear people to them. He loved them. He cared for them. As he did the other churches that he helped to found. He speaks to them candidly, personally, and you can relate to it. You've written and received plenty of them. And in the ensuing weeks and months, we will begin to see how Paul must have felt in writing it and how the recipients must have felt in getting it. And that's because we've been in both pairs of shoes. We've been on both sides of this. We know what it means to send a wake-up call letter to a dear friend or a loved one in trouble, and we know what it feels like to receive one ourselves. And here's the thrust of the part of my introduction, this first part. If you're going to understand the book of Galatians, its theological message, the challenge you face is not just to know the meaning of Paul's words and phrases and the relationship between those words and phrases in a sentence, and the relationship between sentences and figures of speech, and Paul's allusions to the Old covenant and a bit of history of Abraham, you also have to read Galatians as it was meant to be read as a letter. Read it as a letter? Is that so challenging? Or you'd be surprised? When you are so used to focusing on the words of Scripture themselves, you tend to miss the form which they are packaged in. Do you realize that it is actually possible to know the meaning of all the words and phrases and how they how the sentences relate to each other in a particular biblical passage and not know what the passage is saying? Oh, yes. Yes. How can that be, you're wondering? Well... You also have to know the genre in which all of that is set. The several parables, for example, that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 and 25 are a perfect perfect, uh, illustration. They're all very different. But you see rather quickly that they all make the same point if you know that they form Jesus' Olivet Discourse. The genre makes the difference. That sounds astounding, but it's true. The meaning of the words comes from their context, and part of that context is the form in which those words are couched. We all know how differently we respond to a paycheck that we get in a mail and a legal summons. The written correspondence in the first century was really no different. Robert Longnecker lists a number of different pieces of correspondence. In his commentary, he has letters of friendship, recommendation, requests, information, instruction, consolation, praise, thanksgiving, accusation, apology, introduction, interrogation, invitation, and rebuke. That's a list that he gives. I would add to that list official decrees sealed with the emperor's seal, which would be the same as receiving a letter from the president today. Notices that were posted at certain sites, that's a genre. Like Herod's seal on the tomb of Jesus, that spoke volumes. Or his sarcastic words on the sign above Jesus' head as he hung on the cross. We have the same kinds of notices from local officials and town boards posted publicly to alert us. There are also histories, annals, law codes, and much more. Letters are among these, and the category into which the epistles fit, I would say, is a missionary or pastoral address to churches for their instruction in practical spiritual matters. There is even diversity within these epistles. Philemon, that's been called a letter of recommendation. Philippians, A detailed thank you note. 1 Corinthians, a response and instruction letter. Again, Robert Longnecker, he makes a suggestion for Galatians. I think it's pretty accurate. He says a letter of rebuke and request. Well, we have more to say on that later. For now, I want to show you certain truths that Paul's letter, patented loosely after first century letters, tells us that the words in the epistle could never tell us. Are you ready? Consider these truths of the letter that we learn just from the genre itself. One would be this. The Galatians, and we, learn of the seriousness and the urgency with which Paul addresses the topic at hand by the absence of any mention of Paul's gratitude to the Galatians. We learn about the seriousness and the urgency of this letter by the fact that Paul leaves out the the thanksgiving or gratitude in this letter. The Galatians would have seen this or, or known this right away. What do I mean by that? I mentioned that Paul's letters follow loosely the format of first century letters. Loosely. So like first century letters, Paul's letters had a traditional opening of greeting to the recipients, much like we do today, dear so-and-so. What typically followed was a word of thanksgiving or blessing for the recipients, which we also have in our letters. Hope you're well and the family's doing well. We would then launch into the body of this letter and then, tra- and then Paul does that and transitions at the end of his body with a word of exhortation or admonition. Then came his closing, which included further greetings to others, much like our, hey, remember me to your, your friends, and then a benediction. Now, as I said, Paul followed this format in all his letters for all practical purposes, all his epistles, except Galatians. It's really, what's different? Well, in this letter, he leaves out one of the elements. He leaves out the thanksgiving blessing part at the beginning. The absence of this element does not mean, of course, that Paul was not thankful for God or to God for the Galatian Christians. That would contradict the whole reason for writing them in the first place. If Paul didn't care about them, then he wouldn't have written to them. No, rather, this strange absence indicates at the very least the seriousness and urgency with which Paul handled this matter. It's likely that the Galatian Christians would have picked right up on the absence of Paul's thanksgiving for them and then braced themselves for what was coming next. You can see how the form of a letter communicates something of its overall meaning and evokes certain feelings from the recipients. Here's another one. The tone of the letter is confrontational, but in a conversational way, which could be greatly facilitated by dictation. All right? So dictation would would allow Paul to adjust his tone, and his tone was confrontational and conversational. A lot a lot of this is lost today in texting because the lines are so short and they lack necessary context. It's easy for, you to, for your text to be misunderstood by a recipient. It happens all the time. And that could be dangerous, right? That's why some have invented emojis to accompany the text. They capture something of the emotional freight that comes with the words. Paul's tone bleeds through the letter of Galatians. Some have described it as warlike. Others say it's closer to a courtroom style or a prosecuting attorney. It's certainly argumentative, but as I say, in a conversational way, a personal, sort of one-to-one kind of way. It reads like part of a dialogue. We'd say more monologue since Paul's the only one that's talking. But it's very conversational, and I believe that's due in large part to the fact that Paul dictated the letter to an amanuensis. That's somebody who took dictation. It was common in the first century to use an amanuensis, and the New Testament writers did as well. The amanuensis would write on a wax tablet with a stylus, and he would use a sort of shorthand and then he would read it back when he was finished to make sure that he got everything right, and then he would copy his notes over to a letter form. Dictation could facilitate tone, and in some cases do a better job of it than the sender could if he even wrote it himself. Why is that? Well, because Paul could express himself more freely. Now, having secretaries take dictation may become... Or, or maybe fa- uh, may fast become rather obsolete in our day. D- dictaphones are certainly relics of a bygone era. But the concept of dictation is still alive and well. Oh yes, every cell phone has recording capability, right? And unlike the kids today who text with their opposable thumbs moving at neck-breaking speed, older folks like us prefer to use the record option we 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 record our text simply by pressing the microphone icon. my son, who is a champion of the former mode of communication the the neck break texting style, he chides me about this. oh dad, he says, you can always tell when someone speaks his texts. I found that interesting me my guess is that. They sound more conversational and less abbreviated with all the code words and the symbols that, that's part of youth speak today. That's because one speaking his message pictures, pictures himself talking to somebody. Kind of makes you wonder why we text at all and don't just call them. What a novel idea that is. With freedom to speak into the air, Paul no doubt could express himself with ease maybe picturing his audience standing before him, debating with those whom he was hoping to win over, excoriating those who were false. This is why Paul's letters have a life and a flow to them. Now let me say one other thing about Paul's tone in Galatians. It's extricably linked to this genre, this letter form. If you read Galatians without its greeting... The beginning and without its formal ending, at the close that's typical of letters and Paul's letters, you would have no idea that this let uh, you had no idea that this is a letter. Nor would you have any idea of Paul's motives. You wouldn't. The tone behind his words would be lost to you you'd not you'd not suspect that there is any love that paul has for this group his strong language at times would come off as uncaring but because it is a letter a correspondence from an apostle to those whom are his brothers and sisters in christ many of whom he led to christ and for whom he founded a church for their communal worship Many of Paul's words, which are so stern and direct and condemning in some instances and shaming in other instances, take on a totally different tone. It's of a concerned parent for his disobedient kid. Number three here's, what's, here's what else Paul mentions. Paul's mention of his own handwriting at the end of this letter emphasizes his care for them and showed them that his words were heartfelt. His his mention of his own handwriting at the end of this letter. In chapter 6, verse 11, we read, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Most New Testament scholars believe this reference to be referring not to the entire letter, but only to the letter at this point and forward to the end. Paul would actually write the last few remaining lines of this letter himself. So what's going on here, and what does it mean? Why would Paul take up his pen for the last few remaining words? And why would he have called attention to the large letters if they were obvious to anyone reading them? Well, You have to remember that Paul's letters were read by someone to an entire congregation. So Galatian believers would hear Paul's words, but they would never see them. So they would never know, unless Paul mentioned it. For this very reason, Paul actually writes that his letters are big, even though that's obvious to the one reading them, because he wanted his audience to know that. Why? Certainly to emphasize the importance of the contents of this letter, that's that's obvious. He does this in a few other of his letters as well for the same reason, to emphasize the, the importance of the content, what he's saying. But no one can deny that his own contribution to the actual writing of the words would also communicate his close connection with them that his letter was heartfelt and that he was deeply concerned and he cared for them. Hallmark cards weren't invented yet. F.F. Bruce has this to say about Paul's letters. Quote, some writers have no doubt used the letter form to conceal their true thoughts. He's talking about first century writers. Paul's transparent honesty was incompatible with any such artificiality. He tries, where necessary, to be diplomatic, whether he's writing to his own converts or to people personally unknown to him, but even so, he wears his heart on his sleeve. So you see how the packaging of a message is just as important as the message itself. In fact, it becomes part of the message in that it gives its proper context and meaning. Even Paul uses use of sarcasm and rhetorical questions in this letter that make his statements more forcefully are only understood within the form of this letter. Well, we said part one, Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian churches. Part two, I would say God wrote us a letter. God wrote you a letter. I want to impress upon you the fact that God used the normal human conventions of language to communicate to us. After all, he invented language. He knew the genres that people use to communicate with each other. We use some of the same ones that the biblical writers use. Not all of them, but many of the same ones. Is it any wonder that God would use them to communicate his truth to humanity? As a result, the Bible is down-to-earth relatable. In the case of the Galatians, which we would do well to recognize as a letter that the apostle wrote to a small group of churches in the southern part of the Roman province called Galatia, to shake them out of their spell under which certain enemies of the gospel had them by winning them over to a right view of the gospel and giving them further instructions as to how to live a gospel-centered life. Yes, we would do well to recognize that. We would be making good progress if we see that much. But we must go further than that. We're Pilgrim Reform Bible Church. We go further. Paul's letter to the Galatians is God's letter to us with a message that he carefully crafted by the Holy Spirit working through the human instrumentality of Paul. And it's just as... and it's it's just as, as... as heartfelt, just as personal, just as serious as it was to the Galatians. We have our share of enemies of the faith from inside the church as well as outside, and God wants to prevent what happened to the Galatians from happening to us. And I would say this letter from God to us is designed with at least five accomplishments in mind. Here comes the application. Are you ready? Five accomplishments that this letter is designed to bring Number one, it is designed to confirm that there is only one true gospel. God wants us to know that. Paul's words that come to us right at the outset of the first chapter are said with such finality, but there are some who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, I might remind you that Paul's gospel was the right one because, as we'll see later, Christ gave it to Paul directly as he did to the other apostles. Paul didn't receive it secondhand by some human agency. Oh, no, it was from the mouth of God himself as Moses received and by the same supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. However, that that might have been in Paul's case, we don't know. We don't have to know. The true gospel is plastered all over the New Testament, and Paul's epistles are as well, and, and it's in plain language. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, who was blameless, became our perfect substitute, took the full brunt of God's wrath, meant for himself, meant for us upon himself, rather, went into the grave, was there for three days, rose from the grave, conquered death. And this word of Christ is the only work, this work, rather, of Christ. It's the only work that paid the penalty of our sin and pleased the holy God. And the promise of the gospel is that God accepts anyone who turns from his own works to merit God's favor, and trusts instead on the work of Christ alone. Christ completed all that was necessary to earn salvation for us lost souls. We could never earn it ourselves. Salvation then, as Paul declares in Ephesians 2, and 9, is by God's grace through faith in Christ, not works. And that last phrase is just as important as the rest of it. Any person or institution that wants to interject human works into the gospel equation changes the gospel into something else that is powerless to save. Number two, this letter from God to us is also designed to warn us. To warn us that there are certain enemies of the faith who want to tailor the gospel to their own liking. They come from within the same circles of Christianity not from without as God-haters who rail against the church. Now, we're talking about apostates, and we're no strangers to their counterfeit Christianity. Nevertheless, it's still a challenge to know who's who in the church these days. Of course, we can never know what's in the heart of a person. The only thing we can do is measure someone's words and actions by, the, by God's absolute truth. When the words and the actions of professing Christians don't measure up to Scripture, something's wrong, and it bears searching out. But the problem is not always so easily diagnosed. And here's where the nature of counterfeit really hits home. Not all unbiblical behavior is the result of willful disobedience to Scripture. In some cases... People in the church are honestly interpreting the text differently to suit their own words and actions. Because as we saw in our study of idolatry from Isaiah 44 just recently, they've adopted a different hermeneutic, one that allows for their own interpretations. See, Satan has really made things difficult for us. The consolation for us in this case, is to understand that Scripture must interpret Scripture. And the one hermeneutic approach that will ensure a correct interpretation is the one that the Church has practiced for centuries, since the 1700s, the literal, historical, grammatical approach. That is, our interpretation will take the words at face value and interpret them literally as they are meant to be understood And that goes for figurative language, too, where we're to understand what the figures mean and then take them at face value. Now, admittedly, even with a proper hermeneutic, there are some passages of Scripture that are difficult to interpret, no question, although not impossible. But, and that's a big but, when it comes to the gospel, the Scripture has presented it so clearly that even a child could understand it. We attribute this to what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture, that is, the clarity of Scripture. In our Confession in 1689, the divines refer to the perspicuity of Scripture in paragraph 7 of chapter 1 on the Holy Scriptures. This is what it says. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, however. The things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary means. Quote. In addition to accepting God's word literally, we also consider the, gram- the grammar of the text since words and phrases and sentences bear a special relationship to each other, especially where we, we have to translate the original languages into our own. And we also need to consider the historical setting since we're dealing with ancient texts and cultures and customs. We know then when someone introduces a different hermeneutic, because it will violate one if not all of these aspects, Like the feminist hermeneutic, and the homosexual hermeneutic, and the woke hermeneutic, and the transgender hermeneutic, and so on. Number three, this letter from God to us condemns those who propagate a false gospel as if it were the true one. Make no mistake about that. Paul condemns those who propagate a false gospel. There is another startling declaration that Paul makes in the opening verses of chapter 1. It's against the enemies of the gospel. In verse 8, Paul says, But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. These words are strong. They're condemning. Rarely do we read of imprecations like these in the New Testament. They're mostly on the lips of the psalmists. Paul pulls no punches here. If any being, either angelic or human, no matter their status or reputation, and I might add sincerity, if they propagate a false gospel as if it were from God, Paul's prayer here is that they would get what they deserve. We're to believe, then, that there are genuine enemies of the gospel not limited to the world and anti-Christian movements but from within the church and some of them are well received and embraced beloved but such a reality Paul told Timothy would be the mark of the end times number four this letter from God to us helps us or helps those among us who have been confused over a works oriented faith. God wants to help those who have been confused over a works oriented faith. It's hard to know sometimes who in the church are the enemies of the gospel and who are genuine Christians that have been confused by the enemies of the gospel. We have to admit that. Such is the nature of counterfeit. Christians in the church respond to this situation usually in one of two extremes. They either are too forgiving and too permissive, or too condemning and too dismissive. Now, Paul doesn't make it, Paul does make a distinction between the false teachers and the Galatians, no question about it. He does. It's in the text. It's all over the text. As we just pointed out, there are clear enemies of the cross, no matter how sincere they are, or how kind they are. If they preach another gospel, they are false. And this group, Paul, does not hesitate to curse. He calls them sons of the flesh, leaven, boastful, prideful, hypocrites, and he calls them they. Yes, that's the pronoun he uses. They. And he clearly distinguishes them from the Galatians whom he addresses in the second person plural, you. He describes the Galatians as only in the process of deserting the gospel, and foolish, hindered from the truth, and easily persuaded. These are believers. He he also refers to them as children of promise, expresses his confidence in their spiritual status. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. He believes that they are spirit-filled. He expects them to walk by the Spirit, to keep standing firm. And he calls them brothers and sisters eight times. Like I said, we cannot know the heart of another individual. All we can do is call to account the actions and words and attitudes that don't line up with the word. Genuine believers can be misled. And if you were there and you saw Peter carrying on as as he as he did, you might conclude that he was an unbeliever if you didn't know who he was. Paul had to confront him to his face for hypocrisy. His hypocrisy was no doubt motivated by the fear of man, though not because he was an unbeliever. And those in the in the in the in the Galatian church who were being influenced by these false teachers had obviously been deceived. In fact, Paul uses the phrase in chapter 6, if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself and also calls them bewitched. The influence of error can be so strong, so captivating. Five, and finally, this letter from God to us calls us to be on guard For both the apostates and wandering sheep, and to confront both, be on guard about them, and confront them. Those who truly preach heresy and are proud of it and refuse to change should face discipline from the church. We should discipline them. If they refuse to repent, they show their true colors. Those, on the other hand, who are misled need to be restored. In chapter 6, Paul calls the church those who are spiritual, that is, those who are saved, to come alongside those who are caught in a sin and to restore them gently. Legalism and a works-oriented faith is not unique to the kind of Jewish Christianity of the first century, beloved, which was no Christianity at all. There are plenty who champion it with a smile today, plenty more Christians as well who follow it blindly. The former needs to be rebuked and condemned. The latter rescued and restored. And our Father in God, we are grateful for your word today. The little that we have seen from Galatians excites us and motivates us to godly living. We are emboldened, if not Ennobled by it, we feel honored to be recipients of this great letter that has come to us by the voice of God Himself. We pray that we will tremble at it, and that we would we would rightly divide it with care and precision and look forward to having you change us to become more like our Savior as we delve more into this wonderful letter that you have preserved for us, sent to us by the hand of Paul and by the copyists that have preserved it down through the centuries. We pray then, O God, that as we ready ourselves to study this great book, you would be pleased by our desire. And that we would delight in knowing that we have your pleasure. And we pray this for your honor and for your glory and for the benefit of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.